Hello everyone and welcome back to Seed to Harvest. I'm really excited to be joined today by Alda Lou Dennis, general partner at Initialize Capital. Alda is a lawyer, previously a litigator, and also the general counsel at Founders Fund. A mom of three, she grew up in Texas and her parents own restaurants. She's always looking for women founders to invest in and has invested in the mom project, Maven and Tia, all companies founded by women and focused on women. Alda, thanks so much for joining us today. I know no day is the same in the life of a venture capitalist, but to give our listeners some perspective, what does the average day look like for you? Thanks for having me, Paige. Part of the great thing about being a VC is that there's a lot of different dynamic changes that happen every day, but usually there are office hours or board meetings with portfolio companies, time working with other teammates on inter-firm initiatives. Just uh, just right before this meeting, I was uh, talking to a founder about potentially investing in their company, looking at, at deals and working on our investment memos is a big part of it. And one thing I'd love to have more time for is to be able to spend more time just reading, educating myself and thinking about what's what's ahead and what are the interesting areas to invest behind going forward. That's a resounding theme with most folks I talk to in venture. It's a very interrupt-driven field in the best way. It means every day is different, but it's difficult to have what my mentor Judy Estrin calls greenhouse days. I was talking about them on an earlier podcast episode, but those times where you really get to synthesize information and think about what's happening next. I would love to hear more about the office hours that you mentioned. I would love to hear more about how you use office hour time at Initialize. It's uh, sort of modeled after the YC office hour. We ask our founders if they'd like to meet and on what cadence. Uh, usually it's once a month, but there are certainly some groups that prefer more or less frequently. And it's it's not a, a requirement by any stretch of imagination, but you know, it's a, it's a great thing to check in with the founders, make sure that things are on track, head off any potential problems that may be ahead and see what areas we can provide help to the companies with. Awesome. Sounds like one-on-one office hours then? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's two founders or three founders Mm -hmm. and a couple of team members, but at Initialize, we spent a lot of time putting together a fantastic team of operators who can really work with our companies from recruiting to product design, brand, PR. And so a lot of times other team members get involved. That's awesome. For a bit of context for our audience, Initialize is a venture firm that invests in early stage companies with conviction before it's obvious. And they work with visionary founders using software to tackle some of the world's biggest problems and support them through product market fit and beyond. They're an incredibly diverse group of founders, builders, and experts in their field who understand how hard it is to build a company. Some of the companies that you all backed include Coinbase, Instacart, Flexport, and Cruise. So Alda, I would love to hear more about your specific investing areas that you focus on and why. Absolutely, Paige. So you've already touched upon my interest in companies with female founders and female-focused companies. That is probably my my number one soapbox to get on is that women control so much of the, the buying power in this country uh, and consume so much technology that as a, as a consumer, we're not spending as, as much time as we could focused on female-focused companies and certainly, as the stats would indicate, on, on female-run companies companies. And that's certainly something that I feel very passionate about because I think it's an untapped opportunity and one that people, more people should be taking advantage of. 
Couldn't agree more. Digging into your investment style in particular, who would you say are the people, either investors, founders, people from your past, who have had the most profound impact on your investment approach? Well, it would be hard to not point to Peter Thiel, who I worked for early on in my career, as uh, you mentioned, the general counsel at Founders Fund. I also worked at his hedge fund. And, you know, everyone who worked for Peter sort of heard a lot about and was sort of inundated with the concept of, of trying to be a little bit contrarian with our thinking. And you'll you'll see allusions to that when I talk about sectors that are ignored and because where there is white space, there is often a lot of opportunity. I love that. Anyone else that you want to mention? You know, Peter. Peter's fantastic. And, you know, certainly my partner, Gary Tan, is a fantastic investor as well. And he did it in a, a really fantastic way by building out his reputation, by building out his relationships with founders, trying to be hands-on and helping them. And that's something that I've tried to do with working with uh, my portfolio companies is be available and um, be caring, be high integrity, and, you know, most importantly, try to be helpful. Thanks so much for sharing. I always find it interesting to ask other investors who their inspirations are, who they've worked with most closely, and try and build that net around how you shape your investment philosophy. It's really interesting to hear that you apply your contrarian uh, approach to investing in spaces where there's uh, overlooked opportunity. I think that what I've noticed about really strong investors is that they trust their gut. And mm -hmm. I know that when I was starting out investing, which you know wasn't a, a super long time ago, I was a lot more nervous than I know, Paige, that you're, you know, starting out <laughs> with your fund. Definitely. Before we jump into the rest of today's episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Stripe. If you're a startup founder, you know early decisions can be the difference between success and failure. One decision that thousands of successful founders have made is choosing Stripe as their payments platform. Fun fact, at Seed to Harvest, I used Stripe Atlas to incorporate my company. I was able to set up a bank account and start accepting payments through Stripe. And over the past decade, Stripe has supported the growth of the most ambitious businesses, including Shopify, Lyft, and Kickstarter. Stripe uniquely knows how to support startups from their Atlas product that allows you to turn your idea into a business by helping you incorporate quickly to their capital product that provides funding to help you scale your startup. Stripe has the tools you need to grow your business. And if you want to learn how Stripe can support you, visit stripe.com today. That's stripe.com to get started today. Now let's dive in. I can resonate with that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, taking chances and, you know, something that may not check all the boxes is scary. And there's a lot more cover to be had by uh, going where the herd goes. And so it's a really, it's a really difficult thing. And, you know, it wasn't until I got later in life that I really started to formulate the strength to, to be able to take some chances on things that were a little bit more controversial. Yeah, I love that you said that. I think that it's a misconception that everyone starts out as an investor and is confident in their investing abilities. There's definitely an element of nerves. One of our investors recommended that we write down which rule we had broken in our investing assumptions because he said most often the exceptional investments come from places where you've made exceptions in your investing framework, where you're not looking where other people are looking. So Absolutely. I, yeah, I love that framework going deeper on that. would love to hear your top tips on how to pitch a VC as a founder. I've actually been thinking about this a lot. There's a lot of questions that I ask myself and that we ask our founders and prospective founders to discuss 
And, you know, I can touch on those, you know, obviously it needs to be clear what you're building. It needs to be clear what problem that solves, what the value proposition is. We're looking for a strong team that can actually execute on the vision. You're looking for a large market, but sort of the last thing, and this is what I've been thinking about a lot is this intangible of you have to excite your investor, right? And so it could, it could check all these boxes, but if you're not excited and I'm not excited to get up every morning and help this founder work on this problem, if it doesn't sort of spark something in you, it's not going to make it past the line, in my opinion, especially in this market where it's super busy and it's very frenetic and there's very high valuations. It's sometimes you can get wrapped up in this, you know, oh, well, that group did it. And I have this, I'm very similar in this way and sort of forget about that intangible part of storytelling and pitching, which is to, you know, spark excitement in your audience. So it sounds like for founders out there listening to this clarity, team, market, and an intangible excitement, which is often carried through storytelling and emotion, which is something I feel has been ignored in a lot of traditional ways that folks have taught how to pitch VCs. So I love that that's coming more into effect now. And you can take like a a boring industry and make it exciting, (laughs) right? And that, that shows a lot of of skill and that skill can translate into more fundraising, into recruiting, into business development partnerships. It actually is a talent. Yeah. Tell me about the last pitch that really blew you. Well, there's a company that I invested in and it hasn't been publicly announced yet, but you know, my partner Gary took the pitch. He sent it over to me. I said that they already had two term sheets and I met with the founder and really it resonated with me on so many different levels. It's in the, in the FinTech space around financial inclusion and You know, we managed to do our diligence, do reference calls within six hours and put together uh, an offer. And that uh, excitement, I still feel today when I talk to the founder on a weekly basis and and what they're working on. And it's very exciting, coupled with a great mission of financial inclusion makes it something that I, I feel super excited about. Absolutely. I I love that feeling of matured excitement where you get to know the founder more deeply and it matures from an initial gut reaction to really being able to put more plot points to the story on why you're so excited about working with them. You've been heavily involved with fundraising both at Founders Fund and Initialized. I'm curious to hear more about how your fundraising strategy has shifted over time. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily time or experience or, you know, being at at different funds. You know, I was also at 137 and worked on fundraising then. There has been more attention on the venture industry and the returns that we can generate. I have been surprised at how many non-institutional investors have sort of entered the space more recently. And I view that as a type of financial inclusion that this asset class, which is has generated at least in the top quartile, really exceptional returns shouldn't just be available to large institutions, but I, it should be available to to more and i have definitely seen more interest from both individuals you know younger professionals as well as family offices in the space so that's been a really positive a uh, really positive thing um even in just the last couple of years with the exits that we've seen in the public markets it seems like there's renewed vigor for even on the institutional side in in deploying capital what i would really like to see is that increasing vigor directed at emerging managers which i think you can really generate those outsized returns from because they tend to have a smaller smaller fund sizes differentiated networks and unique perspectives 
Speaking of that, what would you say is your secret sauce as an investor? I don't know that I have any secret sauce. I mean, this business is work and every morning you ask me about my day, I, I get up and I'm excited to do the work and I want to do the work. Nothing makes me happier than being able to help out the founder, whether it's through a problem or with an introduction or highlighting a, a landmine that might be ahead and you know, getting satisfaction and excitement out of those interim steps before some, something successful or, or not successful really do, you know, make, make the job worthwhile in my opinion. So, I mean, that's certainly what keeps me motivated, but I, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a secret sauce or something. <laughs> no, that, I know, think it I'm is. I do. think yeah. it's again with like the emotion and storytelling. One of the things people don't talk about enough is do you enjoy the work that you do? Cause there's a lot of people out there that don't. And I think venture is unique in that there's a much higher percentage of people who really enjoy the work that they do. And turn down other opportunities to work in a space that really excites them. Yeah. In this country, you sometimes hear people joke that we do our jobs to make money so that then we can spend the money on things that we enjoy. <laughs> and that's, that's really unfortunate. And what we are looking for is founders who are passionate about what they're building. And so they get up, you know, and, and want to do it regardless of the paycheck. Yeah. I always ask like, why do you, why is this the company you want to run for the next 10 years? So what are the trends that you've seen that you're really excited by? One that we haven't talked about is the intersection of technology and, and biology mm -hmm. and science. Certainly it's been top of mind as everyone is now like a science expert with COVID. But <laughs> what we've seen is that there's been a lot of innovation in research and testing and the ability to run machine learning models and, and structure and tag the data in such a way that you can actually do research faster than you could, you know, 50, 70 years ago, you know, and, and beyond that. That's really interesting. It goes beyond sort of, you know, sort of stronger research tools mm -hmm. into the ability to search and discover and find new therapeutics and I think that that's really fantastic, especially as you go into an aging population in this country. And I think that that intersection is something that's, that's super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. There's an emerging manager would love to connect you with named Ariana Thacker that runs a fund called ConScience VC, who invests at the intersection of consumers and science. So we'd love to I connect love to you yeah, after this. Please. Yeah, that's a trend she's really excited about as well. Switching gears, I would love to ask a couple tactical questions about your earlier career time. So as the chief legal counsel at Founders Fund, you prepared and reviewed hundreds, if not thousands of legal documents. What would you say are the most common mistakes that you've seen and how can founders or investors avoid them? I, gosh, I did that more than 10 years ago. Yeah. So I can give you some examples from, you know, just companies that I've worked with more recently. Yeah, there, I love was, that. there was one company where they had two competing term sheets one from an investor that they felt a lot of kinship with. It was a really strong brand, but that term sheet was less good than the other term sheet in a lot of ways. And most of the time people just think in terms of valuation, but this one called for two and two board with an independent, which is basically a neutral board mm -hmm. and would cause them to lose board control, which uh, I think was unusual for a company that had the growth and the prospects of this company that, that required some discussion and negotiation on how to amend that clause and, or get it out. There are other things like sort of stack liquidation preferences that fortunately I haven't seen in the last couple of years, but there's another company that's in the initialized portfolio that had a term sheet with sort of a stack liquidation preference. And so there, there are certainly things some venture funds will put in their documents 
that are not as company favorable. And mm -hmm. it's always a calculus of where the strength of the, of the negotiating position lies and how to sort of get the most favorable terms. Yeah, I would love to hear more about your experience in negotiating term sheets. I think this is a really interesting thing. I, For context, I teach a venture capital class at San Diego State, and a lot of what we focus on is term sheets and how we can identify risks in the business and then mitigate those through different terms. But being that it's a very founder-friendly market, there are some terms that if you put in the term sheet will cause you to lose a negotiation. So I would love to hear you talk more on negotiation. I think a lot of folks don't realize that you can negotiate terms in the term sheet, but that's very much on the table. And like you said, it's dependent on their leverage in the negotiation. Yeah. As with any negotiation, you know, certainly you would start with a calculation of what, where the balance of power is. Secondly, you would take into consideration what the motivation is of the negotiating, the party you're negotiating against. And so let's use the, the board as an example, because I think it is next to sort of this dilution term, the most important one, even and maybe even more important than valuation and dilution is the board because it fundamentally dictates the balance of power at your company going forward. And there are certainly some firms that as a matter of policy, prefer to have a neutral board or board control. Maybe that's shifting a little bit with the market, but I, I know of large name brand firms that insist on having at, le at least a neutral board. And so understanding the motivations behind that, maybe the particular partner has had to replace the CEO a couple of times, or they've gotten burned in, in specific situations. Maybe you can enact other protective provisions to prevent against certain concerns. Like, are you concerned that I'm going to issue shares to my cousin mm -hmm. or, or whatever. You can put in protective provisions for those things rather than having sort of a blanket board seat. So it's addressing the underlying concerns that would push for the venture capitalists to have a board that's more favorable towards them. I would yeah, agree. Absolutely. Most, yeah. most of those are, are based off of battle scars that they've gotten in previous companies that haven't gone well. But I think bringing a sense of less trust into a new relationship can be really tricky. It's logical that you would want to have, you know, independent oversight by the board. Mm -hmm. So it's not an offensive proposition, right. but certainly I would say that it's not market, especially um, at the earlier rounds at this point mm -hmm. in time. And just referencing the market dynamic can also help as a negotiating tactic because these firms are aware that their own reputations in the market matter and it's perhaps not about this company, but about the next company that's even yep. more competitive. And so certainly those things can, can be additive when trying to advocate for your position. Love that. Thanks for expanding on the negotiation aspect. As you shifted from the legal side to the investing side, what were the most dramatic shifts you saw either in your own practice day to day or things that you might've noticed being on the inside of investing? Well, certainly when I uh, was at Founders Fund in 2006, and I'm dating myself now, it's you know, almost <laughs> 15, 16 years ago, there was not as much capital coming into to venture. And mm -hmm. I mentioned how there was new interest from family offices and other investors in investing in venture. Um, but even the institutional capital that, that we see coming in now and interested in investing in this asset class is new. And so that has resulted in plenty of new funds emerging, new managers, 
And certainly it sort of trickles down to, you know, more, more entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. more companies that are trying to tackle a certain space and basically a very vibrant uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem, which is super exciting at sort of, you know, being able to watch it evolve and watch the wonderful things that have come out of it. Um, Absolutely agree. Yeah. I think seeing the trend of more attention into venture being invested in a more diverse array of managers, you can do venture thousands of different ways, but because there's so much renewed interest in the ecosystem, it means that a lot more folks are turning into check writers, which means there's more opportunity to invest in different areas that might've been considered niche to certain investors. So I'm quite excited by that trend as well. So one thing I'm thinking about as we're growing behind Genius Ventures, we've been thinking about hiring. So we'd love to hear more about how you've made hiring decisions either in the past or, or how you think about making them initialized. Well, we are certainly growing our team at Initialize. So if anyone uh, knows anyone great, <laughs> please, please send them our way. You know, I, I talked about the way we do business pretty hands-on and we have spent uh, our resources and allocate our resources to building out our team to provide uh, strong support for our companies when they need it. And so we have had the, the occasion to do a significant amount of hiring. And it's funny, I was, I was sort of asking my friend at Facebook, how do these big companies hire so many people? Because, you know, it's hard to find really talented people who are a cultural fit and have the same work ethic as the rest of the team. And the answer I got, and I don't know if this is true or not, Paige, was that they hire a lot of people and then the really good ones they keep promoting up and then the ones that are sort of weaker, they just let them stick around until they, you know, through natural attrition may, may leave the company. Wow. And obviously at venture firms, we can't... to do that at a venture firm. Yeah, we I was going to say, there's that. no... There's, uh, there's not enough budget in a venture fund to really afford to do that. <laughs> totally. So for us, we invest a lot in the process prior to bringing mm -hmm. someone on. And I was just talking to someone last week and I said, listen, it's going to take a few months because we want to get to know you. And, you know, this is, you know, for, for a, a partner role, uh, which mm -hmm. we've put an open rec out for, that we want to make sure it's a great fit on both sides. And uh, that's the, the good thing about... Um, this process is that it allows both parties to get to know one another. And, you know, we ask for sample investment memos. We ask for uh, a whole series of interviews and the process does take uh, a little, a little while. And hopefully it's allowed us to make uh, great decisions and bring on people that will be with us for the next, you know, hundred years. Yeah. It sounds like you diligence folks that you hire similar to how you diligence companies that have an opportunity to get to know them. So what would one thing that you think any aspiring investor can do to set themselves up for career success, even if they're still in school? I made two venture investments when I was in law school. So I was, you know, I don't know, like 23 or something. And one of them was LegalZoom. So any, I invested $1,000. So like anyone yeah. can be an investor and literally like, you know, I, I was, that was like a lot of money for me was $1,000. Network is obviously really important. If you could invest $1,000, like great. And, and, you know, making, making actual investments is what makes you an investor and mm -hmm. learning from those investments, keeping, keeping track of your network, thinking about how a company succeeds and doesn't succeed and proactively reading and thinking about markets that are, are prime for innovation. And I don't think that you need age or experience to do any of those things. I love that. That's one thing I always recommend folks do is re read an extensive amount of material and then synthesize it. A lot of investors don't have the time to have that synthesis and reading time and so it's really 
can provide so much value to have someone's perspective on a market where they've done deep research so valuable well awesome alda thank you so much for taking the time today i appreciate it so much and really enjoyed our conversation to close this out do you have any additional things that you want to touch on and then where can people find you on the internet I have, I'm on Twitter and Initialized has a, you know, follow Initialized on Twitter as well and follow my partner, Gary Tan on YouTube. He has a bunch of uh, great tips for everyone. Love that. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Paige. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Seed to Harvest. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever your favorite podcast listening platform is. I'll be releasing new episodes weekly. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to let me know on Twitter. That's Paige Finn, Paige and then Finn with three N's. Thanks and see you again next week.